everyone, I'm Chase Collette, and this is The Entrepreneurial Youth, the show where I talk to entrepreneurs, business people, young innovators, side hustlers, and everyone in between about their successes, stories, strategies, and how you can follow in their footsteps. So if you're running from something, so in other words, if I was running from the fact that I didn't feel like I was paid enough, or if I was running from the fact that I didn't feel like um, I had enough days off, right? Their conversation with me, in other words, their negotiations with me when I went in to quit right. would have probably persuaded me to stay because I was trying to run from certain things. But instead, what I was running to is I was running towards this freedom. I was running towards the belief. Mm-hmm. I was running towards a hope that I could build something. I could create something of great value to right. the world. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of The Entrepreneur Youth. Today's guest is Wayne Mullins, and we had a really awesome talk with tons of useful advice. Wayne runs the company Ugly Mug Marketing and lives his life by the mantra of massive, imperfect action. For Wayne and his company, marketing is about results, not worrying about every little detail. By the end of today's episode, you'll know what it takes to understand your customers, to grow an audience on any platform, and the mindset you need to seize your dreams. So without further ado, this is Wayne Mullins. Everything you do. But before that, I really want to start from the beginning. You know, my show is all about bringing the mindset and strategies to younger generations. So what were you like as a kid? How did your childhood set you up for your success today? Great question, Chase. Um, so, you know, I, I think I've always had, or at least I be- like to believe I've always had kind of this entrepreneurial tendency. Um, I remember for Christmas several years growing up, baseball cards were, were huge back then. Everyone mm-hmm. got baseball cards. And I remember getting certain cards and then I would take those cards to school and I would then sell those cards that I'd gotten for Christmas to friends for money because money was what I wanted. Um, I also remember that occasionally when I would have friends come over to play that um, I would incentivize them to go pick up 10 cans, recycling cans off the side of the road so that I could then take those or aluminum cans so that I could then take those and go sell those and make money. So I would pay them with baseball cards or other toys that they may be interested in. Um, in junior high, I don't remember, it may have been slightly before junior high, but uh, a friend of mine, uh, was over at my house and we wanted to make some money. And so the only thing we really could figure out to do was to cut grass. And so we took a, a piece of plywood that was laying around. We took some spray paint and we painted on their yard work. And then we put my parents' phone number and yeah. lo and behold, people started calling. And so, from that time forward, all the way up through college, I cut lawns. That was what I did every single summer. Um, in addition to some other jobs from time to time, you know, at various points I had other jobs, but I would always, every single summer I was cutting grass. That's awesome. Um, so you, you've always been very entrepreneurial then from the, po- from, I think you said baseball cards, right? When you were really young to cutting grass and everything. That's awesome. Did, did you, out of curiosity, did you make good money cutting grass? Well, I guess that, that'd be a relative term. In hindsight, yeah. Yeah. I made a lot of money cutting grass because I always had more money than my friends had, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in looking back, it probably wasn't, it was never probably any significant sums of money, but back then it was a lot of money. And, um, you know, I enjoyed 
being able to see the fruits of my efforts, right? So being able to go out and work and actually come back with something as a result of that effort. So it was very fulfilling. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. Um, so more in school, right? Were you ever like the really ambitious type of kid? Were you the straight A student who was president of student council, you know, or you, were you more like sit back and go with the flow type guy? Yeah. So my, my, my personal experience is maybe not the best advice, but I was never, I was never overly studious. Um, I rarely studied, um, if at all, I, I did my best not to study. Um, you know, I probably graduated, I graduated from high school with, I think a little better than a 3.0 average. I don't know exactly what it was. Um, so I wasn't a terrible student, but I certainly really didn't care about my studies. I was much more concerned about being out of school, cutting grass, making money, um, you know, enjoying doing things outside. That was my passion. Uh, then in college, the, pretty much the same thing, you know, at various points during my, my college years, I had, you know, two to three jobs, always part-time jobs, but always had jobs. I was never overly focused on my studies. Again, I wasn't, I wasn't a terrible student. You know, I was happy with a B if that was, uh, if that was easy to obtain. I wasn't going to go out of my way for the A. After talking to Wayne about his childhood, I was really interested in how it was that he got interested in business. I was also curious if there was a person who inspired him to work hard in his life. And as it turns out, there was. Yeah, so for, for me, um, the one person that I kind of always looked up to, kind of um, idolized in terms of business was my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather, he had set a goal, he told me, to retire by the age of 50. And he missed it by one year. I think, I think he was uh, 51 when he retired and he had a very good retirement. He had no quote unquote need to do anything else. He could have lived very happily off his retirement, him and my grandmother. Um, but he decided at that point that he wanted to build a shopping center. So I'm talking like, you know, I don't know how many square feet it is. It's probably a hundred thousand square feet, big shopping center. He decided to lease out space to other stores. He decided to open uh, a Piggly Wiggly, which was a grocery store in that space. And he was, he was in many ways, you know, that inspiration for me. Um, he always believed in doing everything to the absolute best of your ability. So I would go work with him from time to time, cutting grass or uh, he had a big, a big motor home, you know, washing and waxing his motor home or washing cars even. And I just remember that he was always paying attention to every single detail. So when you were, when you were cleaning the lawn, it wasn't just enough to, you know, cut the grass and then make it look good. It had to look great. So that meant if there was one leaf laying out in the lawn, you had to go get that leaf. It had to be off the lawn. So it looked absolutely perfect. And he was, he was that inspiration for me. Um, you know, one of the things he always said to me, Chase was, you know, don't settle, don't settle. And in so many ways, I think that success begets or success fosters a sense of laziness. So when we're successful at something, it's easy to then get lazy. It's easy then to coast because we've achieved the thing, right? So for him, right. he achieved retirement. He could have coasted, 
but instead he didn't settle. And it's not necessarily about always being in the pursuit of quote unquote more. It's about not just coasting through life, right? It's about going after things. It's about achieving additional things. College has always been an interesting topic for many people. There are those who can't afford the expenses of college. Some people are jumping at the gates to get college and others never want to go in the first place. The one thing that seems true for many people, though, is they often aren't quite sure of what they want to do when they embark on the college journey. They have an idea, but can't quite see how that would go. This was true of Wayne, and it led to an interesting revelation in his personal life. Yep. So, um, you know, because I wasn't overly studious throughout high school, um, I really didn't necessarily want to go to college, but I didn't know what else I wanted to do. I had no concrete, you know, set vision for this is exactly what I want to do. Um, so, you know, my, my parents, I don't know if this was wise on their part or unwise on their part, but they basically said, um, you either go to school or you move out on your own. We're not going to let you stay here and figure things out. And so, yeah, I chose, I chose to go to school. Um, it was the path of least resistance at that point. Yeah. So I went to a small, uh, private school and I majored, I started out actually, I was going to major in nursing cause I wanted to be a nurse anesthesiologist or a nurse anesthetist. Right. And, um, that ultimately would change during the course of my, my college career. And I ended up with a degree in business with kind of a focus on marketing. So how exactly did you make that transition from wanting to be an anesthesiologist to a businessman? Cause that's a, that's a pretty big jump. Yeah, it is a big jump. So I think it's important to, to go backwards a step and figure out why did I first want to go into nursing or be a nurse anesthesiologist? Okay, yeah, and the answer was, yeah, the answer was money. Um, my, my parents had a friend of theirs and he was a nurse anesthetist um, and he made really good money. Um, he didn't have to go to the full extent of school that a regular anesthesiologist would have to go to. I think it was maybe an additional couple of years. I don't even remember now. And so I've said, you know, that's, that's a nice lifestyle. Like I wouldn't mind earning that kind of money. That's yeah, a little bit of extra, you know, schooling after college, but I wouldn't mind doing that. So you know, if you look at that, my why, my why was wrong. I was focused on this one thing, which was money and making a nice income. Um, and so that why wasn't very strong, right? That right. why wasn't very strong. So the degree itself was really just a means to another end. And really the, the shift for me happened after my first anatomy and physiology test when I scored a seventeen. That's when 17%. I, yeah. 17 out of a hundred. Yeah. That, oh, that oh, that's a rough score. Yeah. And that's one of the classes where, um, you know, I'd actually had to study. I'd actually studied going into that test and I had to apply myself and you can see, obviously I didn't do too good of a job on that, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah. that, that was a, kind of the reality check for me that, um, you know, why am I actually doing this? Is this really what I want? Is it not what I want? Because if it's what I want, I've got to be willing to put in the time. I've got to be willing to make the commitment. And um, that was the wake-up call that, that let me know that I really wasn't pursuing that for the right reasons. Once Wayne realized that 
his reasons for wanting to go into the medical field just in the medical field just weren't the right reasons, he decided to make some changes to his personal path. It all culminated one Christmas day when his parents gave him what might have just been the most influential gift of his life. Yeah, so this the story goes like this. So at some point during my college career, it was either my junior or senior year. Um, for whatever reason, one year for Christmas, my parents decided to give me some CDs. Yes, yes, I'm that old. Some CDs from this gentleman of the name Zig Ziglar. Right. And for, so for you or for some of your listeners, you may not be familiar with Zig Ziglar. I would recommend um, looking him up on YouTube, um, listening or watching to some of his old stuff. Again, at one point, Zig Ziglar was the number one motivational speaker and sales trainer in the world. Um, you know, I've seen and heard that back when he was at his peak, he was at his pinnacle, that one keynote address from him was $50,000. Wow. And so that would be a 45 minute talk from him. And it was, and again, we're talking, this would have been in, you know, the eighties and nineties. So yeah, a lot of money, lot of but money. those CDs um, were on selling. I don't remember the exact title of those CDs, but Zig basically sold me on the profession of selling. He sold me on the fact that selling is the world's greatest profession. Right. So it was that at that point that I decided, look, I don't know what I'm going to do when I get out of school, but I do know I want to go into sales. I want to do something in selling. Right. So I graduate um, and the only job in sales I could line up at the time was a job selling manufactured housing. Um, so I did that job for about a year, give or take. Um, I ultimately was fired from that job. And that's a whole nother story was fired from that job, but I was able based on my experience there and based on my sales ability at that point to get a job selling outdoor advertising or selling billboard space, basically right. for a company. Um, I worked there for a couple of years and it was at that point that, you know, when I, when I went into sales chase, I was terrible, like horribly bad at selling. Right. Um, but I kept studying, kept learning, kept listening, kept reading. And eventually after hearing no enough times after tweaking and adjusting, I actually got decent at sales. And right. by the end of this three-year window, I was actually really good. So I was making really good money. I had a corporate job, eight to five, Monday through Friday, lots of benefits. Um, but I, I started noticing all of the money that I was making for the company. So I would look at what I had sold, my sales quota, look at how much money revenue I was generating for the company. And then I would look at my paycheck and I would think, hmm, yeah, I mean, I'm making good money, but I see how much I'm getting of what I'm selling. Mm -hmm. That's a small, small fraction. And I started wondering what would happen if I actually went and sold something for myself? Like, right. What if I did something on my own, took my sales ability and went out into the marketplace and use those skills for my own company? Well, in the process of making that happen, I decided to sit down and make a list of all my skills and ability. Like, what could I actually do? What type of business could I actually create? And it didn't take long to make that list because that list consisted of one thing, cutting grass. That was the only yeah. marketable skill that I believed I had at the time. Right. So much to the dismay of my parents, some of my friends, I decided to leave this corporate job right. and go back into lawn care full time. Right. And 
that was kind of the beginning of this whole entrepreneurial journey since graduating from school. So for three years, Wayne worked as a corporate salesman, slowly becoming better at his craft and expanding his skill sets. After three years at the company, Wayne wanted something different. Unlike most people, though, who would have stuck with the high-paying job, he decided to take a risk and jump off the metaphorical deep end. Yeah. So let me let me back up just one bit. So okay. whenever I go in to quit my job, um, they tried to convince me to stay, which I really wasn't prepared for. You know, I just right. thought I'm going to get I'm going to get my notice and I'm done. Like I'm that's it. But they basically started trying to negotiate with me. Oh, so, you know, would more money help? Would more time off help? Like what would help you stay? And I wasn't prepared for that conversation. So just, you know, kind of a lesson to think through and something that I've always kept with me since that time is, you know, understanding if you're running from something or if you're running to something else. So are you running from something or are you running to something else? So if you're running from something, so in other words, if I was running from the fact that I didn't feel like I was paid enough, or if I was running from the fact that I didn't feel like um, I had enough days off, right? Their conversation with me, in other words, their negotiations with me when I went into quit would have probably persuaded me to stay because I was trying to run from certain things. But instead, what I was running to is I was running towards this freedom. I was running towards the belief. Mm -hmm. I was running towards a hope that I could build something. I could create something of great value to the world. So when, when I went into quit, they, they attempted to negotiate with me. Um, and I, I don't remember the length of time, but, you know, I ended up staying for about a month while they brought somebody else on and I could help kind of train them briefly before I left. But in that interim, so that job was an eight to five job. What I started doing was on the weekends, I would go door to door knocking, trying to get lawn care clients. And I went and knocked on a door at a restaurant And the gentleman who owned the restaurant said, tell you what, if you can come cut the lawn tomorrow, the project's yours. If not, I'm going to have somebody else take care of it. Mm. Well, that was on a Sunday. The next day was Monday. I had to be at work at eight o'clock to the job that I'd already given my notice on and had quote unquote mentally, as a lot of people would say, checked out of, right? So like, I'm leaning into this future, this future job. And so what I did was, I could have easily called in sick and gone and cut the grass. I could have easily, you know, made some excuse as to why I was late and going and cut the grass. But instead I got there. I don't remember what time it was. It was early. I mean, it it was five in the morning probably. And I had the headlights of my vehicle shining on the lawn so that I could start cutting the grass in the pitch black. And they did have a few, you know, street lights and whatnot around. So that helped. Um, But I, but I cut the lawn rushed back home, got dressed, went to work for eight o'clock. And, you know, although that story is, you know, just a small, like little, little thing, there's two important lessons that I've, that I've always carried with me is one is how you finish things will determine how you begin the next thing. So in other words, how I finished my career with that company would be an indication of how we'd begin this next part of my journey. In other words, if I just sold, if I just blown them off, blown my job off, if I just walked out the door, um, if I had just, you know, 
you know, not cared about the fact that I was supposed to be training the next person to take my job, right. um, that would have been an indicator or an indication of how I'm going to begin the next thing. In other words, I had to finish well. Right. The other would be this, that all too often we tolerate excuses from ourselves. We tolerate excuses from ourselves that we would never tolerate from other people. So I often have people come to me now, Chase, that say, I want to start a business. Like, can you help me? Can you tell me what to do? And one of the first things that I will tell someone who comes to me and says that I will give them a book to read. Mm -hmm. So I don't know which book it would be. It depends on kind of what they're going into or what areas I think they need help with, but I will give them a book to read. And I will say, I will give that to them. So in other words, I'm not going to just tell them to go buy the book. I'll actually send them the book. I'll say, read the book. When you're done with the book, let's continue the conversation. How many people do you think have actually come back to me after that? One in a hundred. Yeah. It's virtually no one ever comes back to me at that Mm -hmm. point. I haven't done to a hundred people, but you're probably right. It's probably one in a hundred. And so what I would say is I could have easily made an excuse when the guy asked me to come cut his grass the next day, right? At the restaurant, I could have made an excuse to myself. I could have made an excuse to him. I could have told him, look, I can't do it tomorrow, but I could come next Saturday. Or I could have said to myself, like, that's ridiculous. There's no way you can go do that before you go to work. But instead I did it, right? I didn't use the fact that I quote unquote had to be somewhere at eight o'clock in the morning as an excuse. Right. I did what was required to move towards my dream, to move one step closer. So how long did you work? So you, you obviously kind of started transitioning from your corporate job to lawn care, but how long did you, how long did it take to fully transition and how long did you work on that lawn care business? So I don't remember the exact length of time that I phased out the other job. I think it may have been around a month that I was, I basically said, look, I'll stay for a month and close out things here. But the lawn care company I started in, I'm just going to tell you how old I am, but I started that company in January of 2003. I sold that company in January of 2006. I was 26 years old and I sold the company. Um, And I will, I'll backtrack, but about a year ago, the gentleman I sold that company to, I happened to run into him. He still has the company and he still has several of the same accounts that I had way back in 2006. So here we are, you know, almost 15 years later when I saw him and he still has the company and he still has a lot of the same accounts that, that I had whenever I had the company. Yeah. But what, what happened with that business was um, over that three year period, we went literally from zero, right. From that first restaurant that I picked up to, we were one of the two largest in our entire region. Wow. Now, you know, we're not in a city the size of Dallas. We're not in a huge city, mm-hmm. but in our region at that time, we were a fairly sizable lawn company. Yeah. Um, you know, we had several vehicles, we had several mowers, we had lots of people on the crew in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened was over the course of that three-year period, we grew so quickly that I actually had a lot of our clients of the lawn care company coming to me and saying, hey, what are you doing to grow your business? Like, can you help me? grow my business. And so it was out of those conversations. It was out of those questions that ugly mug marketing was eventually born. Right. So at this point in his life, Wayne has become well-versed in the business world. He'd run his own company, worked at a corporation, and now he was starting to consult people on the side. Ugly mug marketing had just been born and 
I was curious as to how Wayne got those first essential customers. Well, I kind of cheated Chase because I already had clients. Yeah. I'd already carried over those clients from back when I had the lawn and, and landscape company. So I carried those people over. Um, and so that made it that made it easier, right? Because I was already doing two things at once. In other words, when I had the lawn care business, I was also doing consulting on the right. side. Right. So I carried that over. When I was doing insurance, I was still doing the, the consulting work on the side. Mm -hmm. And so one of the, one of the lessons I think that's so important for people is to, you know, we always talk and there's a lot of talk about soul focus on one thing, but for me in my life, what has always played out well, what has always worked out well is when I have two paths that I'm going down at the same time, they're not opposing paths, right? They're not competing paths. They're just two different paths. Um, so, you know, I didn't, I didn't have to choose between those two for the longest time. In other words, I didn't have to choose between insurance adjusting and consulting for the longest time. Right. But once it reached the point where I did, I then had the freedom to make that choice, right? I wasn't forced to make that choice. I had the freedom to make that choice. And so in, in so many ways that serves us when we have these two paths in our lives, it serves as almost like a backup plan, right? right? It serves as an extra safety net for us. Yeah. Um, so you had those two paths and then you started Ugly Mug Marketing. You carried over all of your clients from your lawn care and your kind of consulting business and you started making money. Did, out of curiosity, as part of that like kind of consulting business where you're already charging people for your services or no? Yes. Okay, yes, so you were charging people for your services. Um. And then once you actually got into it, into the marketing company, did, how quickly were you able to scale? Did you, when did you hire your first employees? How quickly did you build that out once you were fully focused on solely the marketing company? Yeah. So I, I don't know the exact, I'm terrible with remembering the, the exact timeframes, but you know, I, I would say that first employee was probably hired two years in roughly right. first full-time employee, probably two years in before that, I think I had one or two part-time people that would help with various projects. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but the growth was really slow for the first eight years. Okay. For the first eight years, um, I was too stubborn. <laughs> yeah. I was too stuck in my own ways, so to speak, to scale and grow the company. It wasn't until I learned to get out of my own way that I began truly scaling the business and truly taking it, quote unquote, to the next level. Yeah. So what do you mean by you were too stubborn to scale the business and that you needed to get out of your own way? Yeah. I think, I think for entrepreneurs, stubbornness can be a very positive trait, right? Going out, hearing no over and over again, having people tell you your idea is not going to work, having people, you know, all these things, but being stubborn and pushing forward can serve you really, really well as an entrepreneur. But the flip side of that is if you're stubborn in certain ways. If you're stubborn in ways that are detrimental, it can be extremely harmful. So I'll give you one specific example. So my approach to marketing, the approach that I, that I took with my lawn care company and that I was advising the clients at the time with would be what's called direct response marketing. Right. So it's not traditional marketing. It's not brand building. It's not what most businesses do. It's different. And so 
it worked fine when I had clients coming to me. So in other words, when people came to me and said, hey, how did you grow your business? Can you teach me to do the same? They were eager to learn. Right. But what I discovered was when I tried to go into the marketplace and tell people, here's a better way of doing things, they didn't, they didn't like want it. to hear it. Yeah, they didn't want to hear it. And so I would spend so much time trying to convince people to try a different way, a different approach to marketing. Mm -hmm. I was so stubbornly holding on to that thing, which was direct response marketing, that literally, you know, I don't know how much money passed through my hands that I could have had, that the business could have earned. Right. If I had just taken what they asked and, you know, the, there's the old adage, um, sell them what they want, but give them what they need. Right. But I was so stubborn in trying to convince them, like, no, you don't understand. Direct response is the thing we have to do. It's the only way to do this right. Um, that, that I didn't sell them what they wanted and give them what they needed. Instead, I did nothing but try to convince them of something they didn't want. Yeah. No, 100%. Um, and so you made that transition. I, I, so I assume that you said it was slow for eight years. And then that eighth or ninth year, you transitioned to actually selling people what they wanted then. Yeah. So along the way, I'll give you one perfect example of that. Um, you know, so for those first several years, I was out there trying to sell direct response marketing and I would constantly have people ask me, you know, we're not interested in that, but can you help us with our website? Not interested in that. Can you help us with our website? I heard that all the time. And, you know, the stubbornness in me was like, no, I don't do websites. I do direct response marketing. And if that's what you need. Right. And finally, one day I was like, you know what? The next person who says, can you help me with the website? I'm going to say yes. Right. And then I'm going to figure it out. And sure enough, you know, it wasn't long. Somebody says, Hey, I need a website. Can you help with that? Yeah. And I said, absolutely. We will figure this out. I didn't tell them we'll figure it out, but I said, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, funny thing is that website. So I had no clue how to build a website. I had no clue what to do with the website. <laughs> Um, but I said yes first and then figured out later. Um, that person still has their website to this day. Um, the website's still up. And I think I charged them $400 for the website. Right. Now, keep in mind, I didn't know how to do a website. So I had to pay somebody that I knew to do the website. I ended up spending $350 to do the website, charged her $400, so made $50, but right. I learned so much from that experience. I learned so much about my own stubbornness and learning to let go of those things. So knowing how Ugly Mug started its business, I was curious as to how it had changed and evolved over time. Originally, Wayne had tried to sell his customers something they didn't want, but now he was focusing on selling customers what they wanted and giving them what they needed. Yeah, our current business model is, is a good chunk as web websites. Um, you know, we build custom websites and what that simply means is they're expensive. We charge a lot of money to do them. Um, right. You know, we live in a world where there's, there's templates that can be built. There's templates on WordPress, there's Squarespace, there's Wix, there's GoDaddy website builder. There's a million different options out there. And almost every single year, we have gone up on our prices. And so, you know, we're talking thousands of dollars for a website right. um, because we are bringing value to our customers. We're delivering something that, yes, they could go get 
somewhere else. But what we're bringing to them is ease. We're bringing to them peace of mind. We're bringing to them all of these other things that make it worth paying the premium to do business with us. Of course. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's part of being in business is that you, if you have a product that's better than the rest of the market, if you have that premium part product, then you can charge more for it. And yeah, they could go to Wix and pay 17 bucks a month to get a site that they built themselves. But I'm, I can, I can guarantee that you guys have better SEO set up. You have a better website in general and that they're going to have far more value out of that, out of the money that they spend on you guys setting up their website than they would try to do it themselves in Wix, right? Yeah, I mean, what we provide to people is a peace of mind, right? So right. if you have a problem with your Wix website, you know, I, and I don't know this to be true for Wix, so I may be completely wrong, but it's very, it may be very difficult to pick up the phone and call somebody at Wix and say, hey, I've got this issue with my website. It's not working correctly. Like, can you help me figure it out? Right. More than likely, you're going to have to open a support ticket. They're going to take a few days to respond back and it's mm-hmm. going to be this back and forth process. Whereas with us, if you've got a problem with your website, not only can you just pick up the phone and call us and we have a real person that answers the phone 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but more than likely you can pick up the phone and call and say, Hey, can I speak to, you know, Jessica or Mara, whoever actually helped build your website and talk to them directly. Right. So they know your website, they know you, they understand what your business is about. So it's, it's about a human connection as well, as well. Of course. Yeah. So you guys design websites, you do a lot of direct to sell it. Do you do direct, do you still do direct uh, contact marketing? Yeah, we do. Um, we, we try to incorporate that in a lot of what we do, whether that's in social media, whether that's in traditional marketing. Um, we sell people what they want, but we try to give them what they actually need. Meaning if somebody comes to us and says, hey, we want to do radio, Right. That's great. We can help you with that. But what we're then going to do is we're going to we're going to work really hard on ensuring that that one we don't care if it's the most creative radio spot in the world. What we care about is does the radio spot actually work? In other words, does it make people pick up the phone and call you? Does it make people go visit your website? Whatever those things may be. So that's you know that is what I've had to learn. I've had to learn. You can't push people outside of their comfort zone, but you can push people to the edge of their comfort zone. The trick is learning how to figure out their edge, the edge of their comfort zone. Now that we know a bit more about how Wayne and his business serve their customers, I wanted to get some more applicable tips on how you could target your customers. One of the most essential parts of a successful business is fundamentally understanding your customers. And Wayne has some great advice on how you can figure out your customers. So if I were to come to you and I was like, okay, Wayne, I want to take my podcast and I want to blow it up on social media. I want to grow through social media. I want Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I want to grow my company, social media. This is how I'm going to do it. I want this. What would you, what would you, how would you respond to that? And what would you say? What would I actually need versus what I want? I just, want to give an example to the listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So the very first question I would start with is, is what are the tangible things? So you use the phrase, I want to blow up my social media presence, right? So blow up your social media could mean you want a thousand followers, or it could mean you want a million followers. What does that mean to you? 
Mm-hmm. How would you like you just make up a number? But what would that mean to you? I want a hundred k pod, a hundred k podcast listeners. I do. <laughs> okay, and so my next question would be: What are you currently doing, Chase, to get that hundred thousand? Well, let's see. I'm, I'm I'm sending I'm sending articles to bloggers, trying to get on their blogs to get audience members on social media. I'm posting every time I set up a website, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, posting every not a website. Every time I set up an episode, I put out a post. Um, but beyond that, I'm not doing much else. So let me ask you this. What if I didn't know you, Chase, mm-hmm. and I saw your content, right? I saw what you were publishing out. You were pushing out this content. What would make me pay attention to your content versus someone else who's in the similar, you know, doing a similar thing to you? I try and go with the appeal that I'm a very young person. And as a young per- first off, I try to appeal to other people who are my age, my generation, because there's not a ton of people out there who are business people who are young. They do exist. And that's my goal is to try and find other people like me and share their secrets. And that's my appeal is that I'm a young person. And I try to share my insights as a young person and my unique perspective. Right. So how would that look on your social posts? In other words, like what? Yeah. If I was scrolling through, let's just say Instagram, or if I was scrolling through Facebook and I see something from you, what makes it different? What makes it stand out? Right. You know, and then the other question, the most important question in that is why should I care? Not why do you care, right? I know why, why you, care. you care. Yeah. Why should I, the person who's busy scrolling on my Facebook page, Instagram page, whatever it is, why should I care about what it is you're trying to interrupt and tell me, right? Right. And when you can tap into that, when you can tap into understanding your audience's reason why, mm-hmm everything shifts. So when you understand your audience so well, Chase, that you could write a page from their morning journal, right? So in other words, you should know your audience so well that you could go in their house, you could pick up their journal, you could write a page in their journal. They could then pick that journal up and not know that someone else wrote it, not from the handwriting, but from the fact that you understand them so well. And so we would also begin with, with that, like how well do you actually know your audience, right? We make assumptions. We all make assumptions. I make assumptions every day about who our customers are, what their, what their fears are, what their desires are, all these things. But we don't know those things until I use the phrase, you know, sit knee to knee. In other words, sit and have conversations with people and really explore their why. That's when we start to understand those things. Of course. Yeah. No. And so how do you find that deep understanding of your audience? How do you actually figure it out? Yeah, I think, I think one, so in your case, I think it begins with understanding you specifically. So in other words, for me as an entrepreneur, as someone who's owned a few businesses in the past, I can understand where our clients are coming from much easier than someone who's just on our team, who's never owned a business, right? I can relate to them at a different level than someone who's never owned a business and just always been on a team, right? Employed by right. somebody else on a team. And so number one is that you start with you. What are your fears? What are your motivations? What are your desires as it relates to what you do? Mm-hmm. And then two, you begin exploring those same things. So when I think about starting an entrepreneurial endeavor, when I think about starting a business, here's what I fear. Here's what I desire. Here are the obstacles I perceive. And so you have those conversations with people. What about you? Here's what I feel. Here's what I pick up on. What about you? 
Right. So you start with understanding yourself and then you need to understand, you, you need to ask all those questions to yourself. What do I fear? What do I know about myself? And then you need to start asking those questions about your customers, right? Yes, but no, no, you're, you're completely right. The only distinction would be if you aren't in your target audience. So in your case, you are in your target audience, right? You are your target audience. For some people, that's not true, right? They may be selling a product or service that isn't within, you know, they're not in their own target audience. That means they don't believe in their product. They don't believe in their service or any of those things, but they're not the target audience that they serve with their product or service. So with our time drawing to a close, I wanted to ask Wayne my favorite question on this podcast. If you could give a young entrepreneur two pieces of advice, what would they be? Great question, Chase. I would say number one is that the number one requirement for success is the willingness to be uncomfortable. The number one requirement for success is the willingness to be uncomfortable. So everything that you want in life, everything that you desire from relationships to business to anything, it's always going to be just outside what you're comfortable with. It's always going to be just a little bit further out. And so that's, that's number one. And the second thing I would say is this, that in life, particularly in America, we can get by drifting through life, right? Mm-hmm. We can get by drifting through life and we're going to be okay, right? We're going to be okay just drifting through life. Right. But if we're going to achieve what we want to achieve, if we're going to achieve our hopes and dreams, we have to remember that all of those things are uphill. All of those things require intentional effort uphill. And anytime you work uphill, you go uphill, you have to remember that it requires extra effort. It requires consistent effort. But here's the trick. The trick is this, that four days of climbing uphill can be wiped out by one day of coasting. So you climb that hill for four days and then decide to take it easy, take a break, give yourself a, a, a chance to you know slack off, goof off. Mm-hmm. Four days of climbing just got wiped out by one day of slack. Now, right. does that mean you have to work seven days a week? No. no. What that means is you have to be intentional seven days a week. You have to be intentional in all the areas that are important to you every single day. Right. My, my closing phrase would just simply be this. Consistency creates miracles. Consistency creates miracles. We have to be consistent if we want to climb those hills. Well, everyone, that was my interview with Wayne Wallens. I had an awesome time on this interview, and Wayne had some awesome advice. His story of how he started Ugly Mug Marketing was awesome, and I know some people could definitely put Wayne's advice to use. Thanks for listening to me today, and I hope you learned something. It would help me immeasurably if you could think about writing and reviewing the show. On iTunes, you can just scroll down and press the five-star review, and on Spotify, all you have to do is click the follow button. I'll end this episode with one of my favorite quotes from Steve Jobs. Like I do with every episode. Here's to the crazy ones. The misfits. The rebels. The ones that see things differently. You can glorify them. Vilify them. But the one thing you can't do is ignore them. I'll see you guys next Monday.